Have you ever heard of Kelly Corrigan? She has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah magazine, no big deal, calls Kelly the voice of a generation. Well, she also has a podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, and it is awesome. Thousands of five-star reviewers say she is thought-provoking, funny, and authentic. And it has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore to Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithgott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Subscribe to Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hey, everyone. First off, we want to thank you for listening to No One Is Coming to Save Us. And now we want to hear from you, what you've learned, what's sticking with you, what questions you still have, and what you're motivated to do as a result of listening. Right now, you can take our short survey to help us better understand the impact of our work. And even better, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. The survey is short and sweet, I promise, and it will really help us keep bringing you content you love. Take the survey at bit.ly slash no one survey. That's bit.ly slash no one survey. Thanks again. Lemonada. We made it, guys. It is nearly the end of what has been a very long week, for me at least. I keep thinking, it's got to be Friday, right? And no, no, that is not the case, is it? That is okay. Friday will come. That is a fail-safe, right? Friday always comes. Please tell me that's a fail-safe. This is No One Is Coming to Save Us, a Lemonada Media original, presented by and created with Neighborhood Villages. I am your host, Gloria Riviera. Today we speak to Catherine Goldstein. Catherine is a journalist and the creator of the Double Shift newsletter, Podcast and Community. She's written articles on mothers at work, gender equity, and issues facing caregivers. Catherine lives in Durham, North Carolina, with her husband and three young children, including pandemic twins. I'm smiling recalling my conversation with her because it was just so full of energy and really getting to the heart of new, well, old, I should say, phraseology. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago when Chelsea Conaboy just tore down the phrase maternal instinct on the podcast? Well, Catherine does the same thing with the phrase working mother. That's a phrase I used when I described my own credentials in applying to host this very show. Catherine says now is the time to just drop that phrase altogether, get rid of it. She says it is damaging to all women because it attaches a price value to work outside the home and leaves work inside the home, which we all do, without value. So please accept my formal apology. I will now find new language to describe my credentials. I'm going to have to think about what those words are, but I get it. I understand. All right. Here is my conversation with Katherine Goldstein. Catherine Goldstein, thank you for sitting down with us. It is so good to see you. I have so many questions for you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of your work. Good. Well, that is a, that is very humbling. Thank you. I say good because I am also a fan of your work. And I want to talk about um, a novel concept to get started, which is the idea, just like an a, you know, amorphous idea out there of a vacation with just your partner. Yes. Uh, you recently wrote about what it takes to make that happen? What what did it take for you? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I first need to caveat this, that a vacation with your partner, especially one that um, involves an international trip, I went to Iceland, takes uh, significant financial resources. Um, and so not everyone can do that. But I do think even if you're doing, you know, any kind of trip away, even a staycation in the same city or whatever, the amount of logistics and coordination when you have three young children is substantial. And um, I really felt like 
<laughs> what it took to go away really was like calling in our entire village of family members, friends, paid caregivers, the public school system, and like counting on each one of those strands of the web to come together so we could go away for six days and five nights. Um, and it, it is it is eye opening how much um, you know work goes into it, but to me it's it's very much worth it. Yeah, when I hear you talk about it, I think it takes logistics and calling in the village just to go to dinner. Yeah, sometimes, don't yes. don't get yeah. to release that pressure valve as parents and caregivers, you know, a movie, date night, even a walk. I have said for a long time, I just like to go for a walk and hold my husband's hand. And that is a luxury and it is actually helping us alleviate stress because you have also written a lot about the effects of COVID and how stressful it has been for parents and caregivers. I'm glad you had the time in Iceland. It's a beautiful country. I've been lucky enough to go there. But how did it help you see your own stress, what you've been living with, and did it energize you to come back? Yeah. I, you know, I was excited to see my kids and, you know, I felt like the trip was the right length. But coming back, like, I do think that getting perspective on what daily caregiving really is um, and what it demands and sort of how much we, you know, that there's so many, like, wonderful joys of caregiving and parenting, but just having a break from that slog, the slog part of it, like I have twin toddlers, so like the the double screaming, the double tantrums or whatever, you know, like taking a break from that does give you perspective. And it it also, I think, makes you appreciate sometimes in some ways how hard everyday life is. And in some ways, I think that that helps us value our labor um, because it helps us understand that we're not just doing it by default. It is a choice and it is does take skill and, and it is challenging and it's okay to take breaks from that to see that perspective. Absolutely. We need that. It makes me think of what you have had to say about the term working mother. And I love that you're able to write about that term in historical context. How do you feel about the phrase working mother? So I no longer use the phrase working mother, which is a, a pretty big shift from like I the first season of my podcast, The Double Shift, the tagline was a show about a new generation of working mothers. Like I very much claimed that identity for myself and felt like I wanted to speak directly to, you know, that sort of subset of women and mothers and, you know, parents. Um, Who also identified themselves as yes, working mothers. Yes, and, and obviously people use that term, and I don't, you know, I have no problem with people using that term if, if that works for them. Um, but the reason I don't use it anymore is because I think that um, I use, um, you know, mothers in the paid labor force, mothers in the workforce, because I think that the idea that mothers who work for pay are working and mothers who don't work for pay are not working completely devalues caregiving and completely devalues what all mothers do. And I think creates artificial barriers about our shared um, struggles and shared concerns. And also, especially during COVID, so many people have gone in and out of the paid workforce. You know, this one kind of identity um, has been challenged so much. And so many people are rethinking so many aspects of their professional lives and their caregiving. So, you know, if someone's laid off from their job and has to stay home because their kids are in virtual school, it's not uh, taking away the identity of working mother doesn't make sense to me. Right. I remember when I first came to Washington, D.C., and I had, I think, a two and a half year old and a baby and friends got together to welcome me to the city. And one woman with whom I'm now very close uh, said to me, uh, hi, you know, my name is this. Um, who are you? What do you do? Do you also work for pay? Do you work for pay outside the home? is how she phrased it. Awesome. Very in 2011. And it really struck me, you know, my natural instinct whenever I have any kind of discomfort is humor. So it made me smile, but in a way that noted what you're putting this in an entirely different context for me. So I love that you now own letting go of that, 
right, for very specific reasons. Why did the phrase working mother become such an embedded part of our lexicon? So there's uh, Joe Piazza and I wrote an op-ed about this, and we we dove a bit into the history of it. And some of it really was around um, second wave feminists sort of claiming an identity in the workforce and sort of trying to establish that identity. And, you know, I think also there are needs, there are specific needs that mothers face disproportionately in the workplace. You know, all parents are not treated equally in the workplace in terms of bias, in terms of pay, in terms of how they're viewed, um, in terms of uh, caregiving commitments. So it is... And I have to stop you right there because you're making me remember when your co-host on The Double Shift, Angela Garbez, to whom we've also spoken, interviewed your mother, Kay, who's had a very successful career both in the field of psychotherapy and in the food and catering and restaurant business. Um, There was an article when you were young that she was very worried about in which a man was late to a meeting it was Carpal or the Children. It's really tough to be a father these days. <laughs> and the next line, I'm glad it made you laugh too. The next line was your mom saying, it's a lot harder for a woman at work these days, right? Like it's, what is the line she said? Um, your mother said, it is still easier for a man to be 15 minutes late to a meeting than a woman. Like just shut it down. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just check mark where we are. And that was what, the early eighties? That was I think nineteen eighty-four. So yeah. So yeah. let's talk about how times have not significantly changed, that that's sort of still the conversation very much. Yeah. And and I think also there was this you talk about a second wave of feminism, but I can remember, you know, being very proud that my mother was a working mother because I identified working with pay and working with as your mother also spoke about the identity of work. And those are all just the tip of the iceberg for how many huge issues we're talking about that go into the equation of how we define what it is to be in the workforce, both professionally and at home. Right. (laughs) Right? Yes, and all of this very much ties into the idea that um, the only – work that is truly valuable is what is what is financially rewarded under capitalism that 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 basically we are proud of that identity because it also not only signals outward accomplishment and outward status but we don't value unless work is paid or or is compensated we don't value that value that work as a society and um you know you just look at how we pay professional caregivers and teachers and people in the caregiving you know uh, home health aides and elder care workers and nursing home workers we we very much devalue that work so anything that we can say um pays us uh, in addition to the the labor we do at home, confer status. And so unwinding that those like very deep lessons of capitalism is also a big part of, you know, how I continuing to think about motherhood. Like we're, we're talking about the phrase working mother in two contexts. One is that only work for pay is valued. But there's a secondary way to think about it. You know, what are we buying into consciously or unconsciously when we use the phrase working mother? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, first of all, you very rarely hear anyone referred to as a working father. Um, You also very rarely hear successful CEOs ask, like, how do you manage it all with three young children? (laughs) Um, What are what are your what's your morning tips and routine for getting out of the house? Like, when was the last time like Elon Musk was asked that? Um, Right. Or like Jeff Bezos, like. So how do you manage it all? Yeah, I mean, and also I'm actually planning on um, writing a newsletter about the idea of domestic outsourcing. Like, when have you ever heard a professional man talk about outsourcing? They don't outsource because that's what a wife is for. You know, like, so all of these things, like, what are your outsourcing tips? How are you successful because you outsource? Have you ever heard a man talk about, you know, how important it is for their work-life balance and their sanity to outsource? what are your secrets for having it all? Like nobody asked men that. So there is a, you know, but that just immediately, and all this goes back to this working mother concept because this is all on us by default. And so how you untangle 
or break away from that because these gender roles are very, very ingrained is, you know, so fascinating to people. And the fact that men don't even talk about it or even have to think about it shows the difference of their mental load. Have you ever wondered if knowing more is always good? Or if we can really trust our gut? Or how change actually happens? For answers, I turn to Kelly Corrigan Wonders, a weekly podcast I just love. If you haven't heard of her, Kelly has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah Magazine calls Kelly the voice of a generation. The Huffington Post calls her the poet laureate of the ordinary. Her podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, has thousands of five-star reviews that emphasize thought-provoking, funny, authentic. It also has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore and Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithcott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Together they help us focus on the long game of parenting, create support systems, and keep our lives in good working order. Subscribe to Kelly Corgan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. I keep coming back to this statistic that you've talked about as well, which is that the labor force in caregiving and I think you talk about this in North Carolina in public schools. There's some insane number of how many people are just not coming back because they're burned out. In caregiving, it's also they can go make more money somewhere else because we pay poverty level wages. What are we going to do? I mean, now we are dealing with the repercussions of COVID. What are we going to do now in public schools and in caregiving? Yeah. So I have, I feel like I have a. <sighs> an unfortunate front row seat to so many of these issues, both from a personal, you know, both in my journalistic work, but I have, you know, twin toddlers. So I'm in the under five, you're on your own privatized childcare world. And then I have a, a second grader in public school. So I live in Durham, North Carolina, which is like a midsize uh, city in North Carolina. And, you know, the teacher turnover rate this year was 20%. That's um, just crazy. Yeah, there were... Um, 600 kids on the after-school wait list for elementary school. Oh, my God. On the after-school wait list, yeah. 600 kids. Yeah, over 600 kids. And this is, I can't remember offhand, this is not a huge, this is not like the size of Los Angeles or something. You know, this is a, this is a medium-sized school district. Um, you know, my second grader does not have a teacher. He has an instructional assistant who's filling in until maybe they find a teacher who does not have an additional assistant himself. So we are very much feeling the fallout of of COVID. Like I, I sort of think the last, this is the first, in my mind, the first post-pandemic school year. Like we were in crisis mode and now we are, this is the new reality. Um, and there are um, so many, it's tough because public schools are so important and they're also very slow moving bureaucratic monolithic systems. And, you know, in some ways, I think that talking about the caregiving, the care crisis on a continuum of both, you know, we've lost nationally about 100,000 workers from the childcare industry, and that needs to be rightfully focused on. We need a lot more public, I, I believe we need a lot more public funding for, you know, zero to five um, childcare. But it's also a continuum because once kids get to five, it is not sunshine and rainbows in America right now. So I wish there was an easy answer. And like sometimes all we want is quick fixes. And unfortunately, public school in America is like the opposite of a quick fix. And what we do about it, I think some people like may not like the answer, <laughs> which is that 
I think a lot of uh, middle class parents, middle and upper class parents and white parents see themselves as customers of the public school system because they feel that they have other options if they need it, charter schools, private schools. And to really invigorate our public schools, we need to think as parents, less as customers about what is the individual experience our children is getting and more community partners invested in an institution. And let me tell you, it's hard because my second grader doesn't have a teacher. And so you could say, like, why would you keep him in that school? Like, why would you not seek out something better for your kid? Like, many people wouldn't blame you for that. But at the same time, there are thinking about um you know, my husband is actually the PTA president of the elementary school. And so our family has kind of like gone big on investing in what sort of the community response is and saying like, these problems aren't just for other people's families. These problems are for our family too. Right. It's the opposite of a simple answer. But what I'm hearing you say is it's about community and it's about recognizing that you are not a customer. And when you said that, I thought, well, no, you're not. We're, you know, my daughter's on the wait list at her school for aftercare. I mean, I'm not paying for that. There will probably be a small fee for aftercare, but I am not a customer of the public school. I mean, it is a free. However, when we were contemplating whether or not to send her there, my husband said to me, we already pay for this. You know, we already are paying in taxes for the operation of this school. And to think of it as you know, to get a community to come together to realize they have the privilege of a good school in their community, it makes so much sense because people move all over the city for the best schools, right? It's like you need to add the real estate uh, agents with the public school folks to, you know, talk about why good schools make great communities. And that message is just getting lost, I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it, it drives me bananas. I just came from her back to school morning meeting with her teacher and I was like, I love this school so much and I want to see it thrive. And it's not just about her or me or our family. It's about the school continuing long after we've left the school. Yeah. You know, it's also hard to paint in really broad brushes because schools are like the most hyper-local situations and people. And I do think, you know, we have a, a flawed system of tying funding to public schools to property taxes, which like, which are, creates tons of different inequities. And, the you know, these are like huge systemic problems and they're, you know, I, but Part of, you know, what I want to also advocate for is not just like, yeah, these are big immovable problems, but also try to advocate for some more creative thinking. Like, I really think that public schools should provide eight hours of custodial care per day for elementary school students. So Um, when you say custodial care, what does that mean? So that doesn't necessarily mean you're sitting in a classroom at a desk for eight hours, but it means that you are... The public school is responsible for the care of the kids for eight hours, and that can include an hour of playground time, that it can include, you know, extra art classes, that can include, you know, girl and boy scout troops who are like, you know, coming in during school hours, whatever the whatever the activities are, but that they are providing uh, eight hours a day a safe and enriching place for kids to be. Yeah. And that is for public school parents. We know that is not the case. And the number of work days and days off and summer and all of that is not conducive at all to being an, a parent that is employed. And it hits, you know, kids the hardest who don't have a safe place to be, who can't be supervised, who whose parents have to lose income when there's teacher work days. So I think that um Thinking about this is like this is a community good, and we this is it should be about custodial care and how to fill that time in an enriching way. To me, is I think one of the big things that needs we need to rethink. So I like that you've outlined things to do with the public school system, which are all, by the way, applicable in some way, shape, or form to early education in zero to five. But we're talking about structural change within the public school system, and one of those is, is scheduling, is just scheduling. So what do you think we should do with scheduling in the public schools? Well, I think that there's great evidence for year-round school and a tracking system. So basically, you do things like 
like you have 70 so like say you have a thousand kids in a school only 700 are in the building at any time because some have you know six or eight weeks on three weeks off and so you're working on different tracks it's a little hard to like verbalize exactly but basically it's operating year-round so there is less strain on building resources and um and certain staffing resources. And then you also are able to give certain teachers, uh, there is some evidence that this kind of tracking system helps with burnout for teachers because instead of the one long summer break are also able to recharge over, you know, a three week break. Yeah, you did it in five days in Iceland. So, you know, (laughs) they can do it over (laughs) three weeks. Yeah, well, so and and also I think that this also places less strain on um, potentially like summer, like if if a whole district adopts this, um, not just one school, it, it places less strain on. Um, schools out and summer camp resources. Like, for, you know, many people know that getting into summer camp is is expensive and it's really hard um, and that there's just not enough spots. There's this one, we love the summer camp at our Jewish community center. And there's not that many things in Durham that are like this other than childcare and summer camp, but you have to be on at 9 a.m. to sign up, you know, in oh, yeah. in January to get in. So, um, and the, usually by the, by the time I've filled out a few weeks, the end of the summer is already booked. Right, right. And and just so every all the parents out there know, and they know this from experience, but this happens everywhere. I mean, I have been at my laptop on the phone with other, usually it's moms, sometimes it's a dad thrown in there. Um, nine o'clock, sign up is open, and boom, it's gone. I mean, people are like, oh, I couldn't get a spot. Like, it's just... It's, it's like the worst. Well, only in America is, um, you know, childcare like getting the most coveted concert ticket. I mean, it's yeah. it's really – and so this kind of system, I think, um, also would help with some of those things because some of these um, – you would have kids in diff- off at different times. You know, I, there, there are complications with like siblings or whatever, but usually I think – if a whole school district operates on this schedule, like it really can, I, I think it's one of the potential solutions. And learning loss is very real. A lot of kids are, are reliant on public schools for meals. And so having three months off really does not make sense. Um, and actually, I was as I was looking into this, a lot of people think this is from an agrarian, this is a holdover from agrarian society. It's actually not. It's actually a holdover from turn of the 19th century where wealthier families in big cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia wanted to leave the city because it was so hot. There was no air conditioning. So wealthier families would leave and go to the Catskills or, you know, Cape Cod or whatever. And so they didn't want to have school in the summer. So that's actually where it's from because the cities were so hot. And of course, at that time, there was usually a stay-at-home parent, full-time stay-at-home parent, the mother, who could shepherd the kids to the vacation house or whatever. So that's actually where summers off come from, not from farming. And another thing that's fascinating is like I found in my state of North Carolina, the tourism industry is actually lobbying for it to be longer. Yes. Oh my God. This is crazy. You have to explain this to our listeners. This is because it can't only be happening there. Yes. So North Carolina has a pretty big beach tourism industry. That's a lot of people from North Carolina go to it. And the tourism industry is actually lobbying for, you know, schools. They've actually successfully made the legislature make a law that schools can't start before the last week of August because they don't want to miss out on vacation rentals. And they were upset and like, you know, tourism dollars. And they were upset that schools were starting earlier and earlier because it was cutting into their profits. Now, they have effectively gotten a subsidy and a public policy in place to make us, we're one of the last states in the South to go back to school. When do you guys go back to school? We don't go back to the last week of August. So that's similar to some places in the Northeast, but a, a lot of places in the South go back at you know, the start of August. So Yeah, we're back by like August 20th around yeah. then. But it's fascinating because that is very much a, that's a public policy choice. And I don't personally, especially given everything that parents and kids have been through and the school system and learning loss and everything with COVID, I don't think the tourism industry should be setting our educational policy. Well, one of the things that I loved when I was researching on the double shift is that you spoke to moms about how they use the child tax credit. The child tax credit ended 
in December 2021. It had been enormously helpful. It had lifted something like over 3 million children out of poverty. I mean, that is a hard number and amazing. Uh, One of the things that you looked at when you were on your podcast, The Double Shift, was how mothers used that money. And I remember the story of the woman who said she hired a babysitter, said she had could not remember the last time she spent anything on self-care. And I think she ran for her school board. Yes. She joined her school board. She like, ran for her school board. Fantastic. So she's out of the house. She's taking care of herself. Her stress levels are at least being considered uh, and alleviated to some degree. I think that, you know, one of the the lessons that I've taken away from the child tax credit and, you know, cash payments work for families. I'm tired of people talking about, like, we need to pilot them. It's like, how many pilots? Like, we just did this massive national pilot, and it was wildly successful. And, you know, individual cities are doing more programs. But this is the most effective form of public benefit. It has hugely positive impacts. It does not create a lot of bureaucracy um, because that's a big conservative argument against public benefits. And it's it's hard to like live through something that is clearly working and then people not understand that it is working. <laughs> right. And then to see it go away. Yes. Right. Yes. Like that's a very hard moment. And I mean, I imagine it felt like no one cared at that point when the check was no longer automatically put in your bank account. And also to not not to be too um, like cheesy, but the title of the podcast is No One's Coming to Save Us. And that is how I very much felt about my experience as being a mother and also observing how mothers are treated in this country. And so that is a big part of why I talk endlessly about community and community building, because it's not that I'm not in any way anti-government. I think the government has a very important role, but I think we have to build the communities in the world that we want because, it, you know, that's it, it. no one's fixing it for us. Yeah, build the communities that we want because the tagline after no one is coming to save us, we often say, so we have to save ourselves. Yeah. Hey, listeners, are you looking to update your wardrobe with items that actually make life suck less? We're here to help. We've got brand new Lemonada merchandise from Add to Cart, In the Bubble, V Interesting, Raised by Ricky, and more at the Lemonada Media online store. From stylish sweatshirts to eco-friendly water bottles, we've worked hard to curate a comprehensive line of actually cool merchandise that will fit seamlessly into your everyday life. Show off your favorite Lemonada podcast or your favorite lemon logo, in style with t-shirts, tumblers, hats, mugs, and more. Head to our merch store at lemonadamedia.com slash shop to pick up your Lemonada merch today. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes segments, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through all of our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. If we look at public school and and you're in a community where there are changes you see that could be made, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle everywhere. Um, And we've talked about the mental health toll. Where are we now in terms of how parents are dealing with the stress of COVID, the repercussions? I know where you are. Your son doesn't have a teacher. But where do you see the larger community, the community that was your double shift community, you still have a blog, you're still engaged in that community. What are parents telling you now? I mean, it's only early October. How are things going for them? Yes, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I feel like I especially want people in power and people in workplace power to know is that in terms of school and childcare, we are not back to normal. And normal was not good enough. (laughs) So I think, you know, as we've talked about today, like, there are ling- we're we're dealing with 
the lingering effects of a frayed safety net, you know, and so that is continuing. And I think very many, a lot of families are feeling that. And another big piece, I think, of like where we are is that I think that there's so many complex conversations about what workplaces, white collar workplaces are going to look like, remote work is going to look like. And I think that there is a sense that there's just a lot of uncertainty about what flexible work is going to look like. And I think that people are grappling with that. And I think that we have to be really intelligent about not marginalizing people who want flexible work. And um, but at the same time, I think flexible work has, um, as Anne Helen Peterson wrote about in Bloomberg, flexible work has sort of enabled women to further be a safety net, to be home from when the kids get home from school because there's no aftercare program, you know, to be able to run over to the nursing home for, for um, you know, elder care. So when flexible work is like the extent of the public policy for caregiving, that is not sustainable either. So I think that people are still continuing to deal with the effects of all of these overburdens. I think this is one place where we do go back to a commonly heard phrase, which is a social safety net. Like flexible work, I've heard people discuss it because they had it during COVID, women in particular, they recognized it as a benefit. So when they went back to have conversations about work, are you coming back to the office? The argument was my flexibility was a benefit. I mean, to go to your place of work and say the flexibility I had during COVID was a benefit is problematic for me because I don't like using the term benefit in a corporate uh, setting that's not a recognized benefit. It's not, it's like we were talking before about paid work. That benefit is not tied to any sort of financial transaction. It happens to be the reality for for me personally. I live it every day. I'm able to do pickup. I'm able to run carpool. I'm able to squeeze in my work where I can, but it's, it's threadbare. It feels threadbare to me the way that I'm running my life. Does that make sense to you? I I feel like it's not a solution. It's putting more of a burden on me. But here I am, happy to do it all because that's what I am like socially programmed to do. Right. Well, I think if, if, if we think remote work or flexible work is the tool for women to have it all, we're going to find once again that that is a lie. And right. we are, it's, a gonna, it's a lie that we're telling ourselves. It's a lie that employers are telling, you know, employers somehow feel that they're being shortchanged by this. There's a great uh, quote that I use in some of my presentations, which is, you know, as long as men don't ha- have to do anything and we can run around thinking we can do it all, then that like no system has to change. No one, no men have to give anything up. And so if we think flexible work is going to let us, you know, have it all and do everything, um, you know, I think we're once again falling into a, a very difficult trap that only leads to people feeling like personal failures when really it's a systemic failure. Yeah. And there's so much to say about that. But I'll just mention, I also have a problem when people tell me, women in the workforce tell me, oh, my employer is giving me flexibility. Uh, no, they're not. I mean, they're allowing you to work from home so that you can do more work in your role as a parent. But it's work. You know, it's work and there's a toll, there's a price for that work, uh, which is stress and mental health. I mean, it doesn't, the bandwidth is not endless. Um, that's what I, that's where I'm like, I don't know that this is, this is not a solution. Yeah. I mean, this makes me also think about like some companies have had policies of like, after your three-month maternity leave is over, you can bring your baby to the office. and Oh, for Pete's sake. And like, <laughs> you know, and this is like seen as innovative. And I don't, I don't have a, like people's heart is in the right place. But like what people need is like real family leave, not to try to multitask with a baby on their lap in the office. And now I think that probably we're having even more of that with, you know, childcare being so expensive and so hard to find is that people don't want to go back to the office because they literally have no place to take their child and they are trying to do their job and watch a baby. I mean, I'm in like these different like Facebook mom groups and there's like, 
there's, I feel like at least once a week, I see some sort of question that it's like, I'm working full time and I have a baby at home with no childcare. What are some tips? It's like, stop. (laughs) Yeah. There are no tips. Like we have no tips. Here's the bad news. Well, and people will be like, well, why don't you try blah, blah, blah. And it's never like, I've never seen a man pose that problem. Have you ever heard of a man saying like, I'm working full time at home with a baby? (laughs) And this takes us to recognizing that that is a job, that running a happy, healthy, smooth home requires skill and is hard work. So it's like unpacking all of that. By, by the way, nobody tells you this when you're pregnant and about to have a child. <laughs> like Your life is about to be turned upside down. But all of these, it's like I keep checking off these boxes that make me go, oh, yes, I was a participant in the misguided perception of what it means to be a to use your now discarded phrase, quote unquote, working mom. Right. And I think that that kind of image of like, look, here I am, like I'm a successful, you know, I have my successful journalism career and this cute baby at my feet. This is what it means to have it all. And I think like, you know, the the more we let go of the image of having it all, I think the better. And I think another thing that a lot of people have come out of the pandemic is like, really reprioritizing and understanding, you know, that job is not going to love you on your deathbed. And, and I think that especially for people like both you and I, who've gotten a lot of sense of identity from our work, there's a questioning of what we've bought into and what our work means. And, you know, if, is that external validation enough always for what it costs us? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I grapple with that every day. Um, and I, you know, I'm still figuring it out clearly with this show and by talking to people like you who who thankfully do the hard work of thinking <laughs> this through for me. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to let you go without taking a pivot to the repercussions of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. What does it look like in North Carolina? What are you hearing from young women? I always ask our listeners, and you did this on the double shift, which I loved. I I always ask our listeners to contribute to the show by asking them, would you want or would you want anyone you care about to become pregnant in the next year? How would you answer that question? It's a really hard one. And I think, um, you know, it's also really interesting to be so invested in this and also but personally know like my reproductive years are over. Um, and so the reasons I fight is not really for my own body, but for knowing like what this, what this really means for everyone. And I would say that there, I would say that it would all be about, um, people's individual circumstance about what, what I would want for them. And, you know, another thing I would just say in terms of how I'm thinking about Roe versus Wade is that I have gotten, um, I've done some trainings. I've gotten a lot more involved in learning about uh, Plan C pills and abortion pills. And so I really encourage people to educate themselves about the miracle that is abortion pills and the amazing safe option it provides to people um, and it, it, that pills can be obtained in all 50 states and people need to be sure they know that and, you know, spreading information about them and um, they're all, they also do trainings for people to be partners for people who are going through a self-managed abortion. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I do think that we need to think about abortion as less of a centralized clinic experience and more of, um, unfortunately, the reality is a grassroots a community experience. Yeah. No, I am 100% on board with that. And I think one of the first things, the first phrases that I really digested when Roe was overturned, and I'd done a lot of reporting on it before, but this stopped me in my tracks, is that, frankly, white women, which I identify as a white woman, um, you know, have been coasting on Roe. And really, what does that mean? And talking to smart people in the reproductive justice world, understanding, you know, the history of how that came to be, and I, you know, I think about the most um, vulnerable communities of women, women who are single mothers, black and brown women who have a child, maybe more than one child already. Like it's, it reminds me of the childcare crisis because, w- like, what are we going to do? Ask them to go out and fight for this? Like, they're exhausted. They're at the end of their rope, just like parents were during COVID and before. Um, so, th- so there has to be another fighting force on their behalf. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, and I think that 
um, it's important to sort of, you know, I think also to understand that like our struggle is the same and that if some people feel like they, for example, you know, oh, well, I can afford to take a plane if I need an abortion, like that is, that's wonderful for you. But also understand that like, for example, in North Carolina, we're getting tons of people who are coming from other states who need medical services. So no one wins an overloaded medical, once medical services are overloaded. And this is really is communal. And, you know, so even though abortion is legal here, you know, we have to think this has a huge impact on all aspects of reproductive care, including miscarriage care, including all sorts of other kinds of reproductive care. So just thinking that, you know, you have an escape route is short-sighted and also just not true. We all need to be in this fight. Well, Catherine, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for the work that you do. I found uh, your blog, everything that Double Shift publishes, particularly the podcast, you know, really a lifeline through COVID. Um, so thank you so much for, for that. Uh, keep going. That's <laughs> what I always like to say. Keep going. Yes. Um, and I hope that we can have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. We all need to be in this fight. I couldn't agree more. Thank you again to Catherine for chatting with me. Her newsletter, The Double Shift, is such a wonderful addition to my week. I'm always so excited when it hits my inbox. We will put a link on the show notes for you to subscribe, and trust me, you will not regret it. All right, you know what time it is? My favorite part of every episode. This is our chance to hear from the No One Is Coming to Save Us community. I asked you, in light of the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the high cost and inaccessibility of childcare in this country, would you want or would you want someone you care about to become pregnant in the next year? Why or why not? Here's what you had to say this week. Hi, Gloria. Thank you so much for everything that you do through this podcast. Um, so I am pregnant with my third and final baby. And we had a lot of competing interests in terms of the timing of, of this baby. And one of them was that we currently have two children who are daycare age. My son is one of those children who has a summer birthday. He could go early right after he goes go to kindergarten early right after he turns five or wait until he turns six. And it absolutely breaks me up that the financial concerns are a huge part of our decision to send him. We also wanted to prioritize having our third baby prior to the 2024 elections, because if Republicans take back all three chambers, so to both chambers of the House and then the executive, I'm scared about what's going to happen. And so the timing of this, this baby being conceived isn't lost on me. I conceived him the week that the Dobbs decision was handed down and getting news that was so happy for our family. And luckily, knock on wood, I've had such an easy pregnancy so far. But knowing that that was happening as rights were being stripped further stripped away from millions of women and pregnant people just has left a lot of tension for me. So all that is to say, it's an extremely complicated time to be pregnant or think about becoming pregnant. Oh my goodness, Mama, having two young kids in daycare and one on the way, that is a lot. Hang in there. I'm so happy to hear that health-wise, it has been a straightforward pregnancy so far. Amen to that. And I'm so, it's still so disorienting. Is that the word? I don't know. But it does something to me to hear you say you wanted to prioritize having a third baby prior to the 2024 elections because, well, because, 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 yeah, I know what comes after that because. I hope you have the tools, and I think that you do just hearing your voice, to deal with the tension that comes with timing your pregnancy on what might or might not happen politically in this world, because that will have a direct impact on the children you have, are expecting to have, or are trying to have. 
Sometimes that tool, it can simply be an exhale or a snuggle with your babies, something that makes you feel safe in this world. You are not alone. What you said hits on something we talked about so much in today's interview, just how critically important public school is for mothers and caregivers. Imagine how much easier things would be if we had publicly funded childcare options for all children, not just children over five, right? It would be a game changer. And that is why we keep fighting. All right, it's your turn. I want to hear from you. In light of the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the high cost and inaccessibility of childcare in this country, would you want or would you want someone you care about to become pregnant in the next year? Why or why not? To share your thoughts with me, just pull out your phone, record a voice memo anywhere, anytime, and then email it to me at gloria at lemonadamedia.com. It is super easy. Thank you all for listening this week. I'll see you back here next Thursday. No One Is Coming to Save Us is a Lemonada Media original, presented by and created with Neighborhood Villages. The show is produced by Chrissy Pease, Alex McGowan, and Martine Macias. Our audio engineer is Kat Yor, with additional help from Bobby Woody. Music is by Hannes Brown. Our VP of weekly content is Steve Nelson. Our executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, and me, Gloria Riviera. If you like the show and you believe what we are doing is important, please help others find us by leaving us a rating and writing us a review. Do you have your own experiences and frustrations with the childcare system? Do you have ideas for what we could do to make it better? Join the No One Is Coming to Save Us Facebook group where we continue the conversation together. You can also follow us and other Lemonada Media podcasts at Lemonada Media across all social platforms. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Until then, hang in there. You can do it. Hey, friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, I'm here today to tell you about Lemonada Media's newest limited podcast series called Declined. This series takes you through the journey of two exceptional women from incarceration to freedom, ultimately leading to the creation of the Returning Artists Guild, an organization that uplifts the artwork of currently and formerly incarcerated artists across the country. Call Declined is out now, wherever you get your podcasts.